Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, many Ontarians are going to be able to get their second COVID shot faster than they thought. Provinces announced a plan to target Delta variant hotspots. We'll give you the details on that. Ontario is calling back legislators as the government moves to invoke the notwithstanding clause to restore Elections Act restrictions, and not everybody's happy about it. And why does the Trudeau government continue to fight Indigenous compensation claims in the court? It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We want to talk about ramping up the vaccine program. Uh, many Ontarians are going to be able to get their second COVID shot a lot faster than they thought initially they were going to. Global Sandy Salerno has some of those details. The province will be speeding up second shots in areas that have the highest number of cases linked to the Delta variant. Starting Monday, residents in seven hotspots, including Toronto, Peel, Halton and York, become eligible to book their appointment as long as they had their first dose on or before May the 9th. Appointments can be booked through the provincial booking system, through public health units using their own booking systems and participating pharmacies in primary care settings. Health Minister Christine Elliott also saying today the province is not changing the 12-week span for those who had AstraZeneca as their first shot. We want to make sure that we can protect all of the people of the province of Ontario, and the evidence to date suggests that the 12-week period is the best uh, interval in between the first and second doses. Sandy Salerno, Global News. So, uh, why the blitz, and, and how effective is this going to be? Well, we're pleased to welcome back to the program Ryan Imgrind, a biostatistician to give us his read on this. Ryan, as always, thanks for the time. Good to have you with us again. Thanks for having me. Uh, somebody characterized this the other day as, as a race between the Delta variant and the vaccine program. Uh, who's winning right now? Yeah, I think right now uh, the vaccine program is winning. Um, we do have a reproductive rate here in Ontario significantly under one. That's how many secondary infections are linked to one primary infection. Um, right now it's standing at around 0.75. So here in Ontario right now, um, based on the data that we have, um, overall, the number of cases is like dropping, which shows that the vaccination program here in Ontario does seem to be working very well. So how concerned are you about uh, this variant and, and the way it seems to be spreading? I mean, we're hearing some rather ominous warnings from, from Dr. Williams, Dr. Brown, and, and many others. Yeah, I think one issue is, is that we don't really have a good grasp on how many cases are the Delta variant here in Ontario. Um, there was some information um, that we heard the other day about the vaccination strategy switching to like, cover some of the areas where we see a lot of the Delta variant. And it was quite like confusing why some areas were left off. Hamilton, let's say. Um, so apparently there is data that is out there about where the Delta variant is, what like proportion of those cases it makes up, that the data just hasn't been made public as of right now. So it's really tough to say um, how bad the variant is here in Ontario. So, but we still have the other cases, I mean, of, of, of another variant, I guess. I mean, Hamilton still is considered a hotspot, just not a hotspot uh, for the Delta variant right now. And that's exactly it. And, and, and I think really that's all that we can look at right now is just the overall number of cases that we're seeing. And what we're seeing is that it is a significant trajectory down. I think that if the variant was wreaking havoc in some of these areas the way that we kind of expected it to, um, you know, we would see a reproductive value significantly above one in many, many health units. Most public health units now have a reproductive value under one. Um, with that being said, that's reproductive value under one with the stay-at-home orders and everything else in like play as well. This is the same variant that uh, was first identified in India, and it, it went it's across that country, like wildfire, of course. Uh, and, and God help us, I hope it doesn't happen here. But we seem to have it under control to a certain extent here, too. What's the difference? Yeah, that's uh, an interesting point. I think 
one thing is, is the fact that when the variant started to ramp up here in Ontario is when we underwent the stay-at-home order and when we locked down. I think this was very different from the second variant, uh, from the second wave when we had the UK variant. What happened here in Ontario is that we were opening up. Um, we didn't lock down. We didn't shut down in time. And we weren't able to stay away from that UK variant. So I think things are very, very different. Um, you know, some of it seems to be like timing. Um, we were opening up when the UK variant started to like take over. That led to the third wave. But now we were, you know, like closing down. Um, it's also the start of the summer season as well. People are getting outdoors when the Delta variant was starting to take over. So I think the like timing worked out in our favor. We talked about this obviously originating in India, which leads me, I guess, to what's going to be happening at the G7 conference and the commitment from a lot of those G7 leaders to start sharing vaccines with some of these other countries that just don't have the supply or maybe didn't want to have the money for the supply, as it turns out, too. And you've talked to us about that in the past, that this is not going to go away until every country has access to vaccines. How important is that and how are we doing in that process? Yeah, so here in the Canada, we're actually doing very, very well. Um, we're on, on uh, like track to get at least single dose, um, you know, between like 81 to 86 percent of our population. That's what some of my like, projections are showing. Now, what's important here is that we get those individuals fully vaccinated. So I think that was one of the more interesting differences in the U.S. They seem to have kind of bottomed out at around 55 percent being fully vaccinated. There in the U.S., they had that three to four weeks between doses so they could, you know, um, have that first dose three to four weeks later. Second dose here in Ontario, we just really, really rushed that first dose into people, which seems to be looking back a fairly decent strategy, because if at least you get a lot of the people single vaccinated, even if they don't get double vaccinated, it's not the end of the world. We want people double vaccinated. But the fact that we have almost 80 percent of our population here in Ontario single vaccinated is just fantastic. And and when we look at some of these other countries, and that's uh, I guess it's going to be done through the COVAX uh, agreement, uh, United States. And now I'm understanding Canada is going to make some sort of an announcement today about their commitment to this uh, to to ensure that at least there's going to be some coverage in some of these other countries as well. Because I guess if we've learned one thing with SARS and now certainly with these uh, COVID viruses, uh, it's a small world and it, it doesn't take much to transmit, does it? No, absolutely right. The you know world is very, very flat when it comes down to virus transmission, especially with airplanes, um, especially with people wanting to travel as well. Um, you know, we can't even forget in, you know, Europe, let's say you go over to Europe. Well, if you're visiting, you know, one or two countries over there, then you're, you know, sort of relying on that country and what they're doing in terms of the influx of people from other countries. And, you know, to not have to worry about that, it's just a much easier solution to just get out the vaccine to as many countries worldwide as we possibly can. Um, I, you know, certainly hope the Canada plays a really, really big role in that. Uh, and, and that's kind of the, the good thing about our strategy is that we overbought vaccinations. Some people were worried at the time that we were taking away from other countries. I guess in retrospect, we slowed down the vaccination progress in some of these other countries. Um, but now that, you know, once we get enough people vaccinated, hopefully we can then send this vaccine to other countries and then get the whole world vaccinated. We're vaccine mixing right now, too. I mean, especially people that had the AstraZeneca. Now, they're now being told that that second shot doesn't necessarily have to be AstraZeneca. Uh, some people are concerned about that, but there seems to be some statistical evidence that this is actually a pretty good idea. Yeah. So um, what the what the evidence seems to be showing that I've seen 
um, is that your second dose um, should be an mRNA vaccine. The evidence um, is all around Pfizer. With that being said, Moderna, um, you know, still an equally good second dose, second dose choice for those who receive AstraZeneca as their, um, you know, first dose. Um, it and the fact that the like, timeline is the same, whether you get AstraZeneca as your second or in mRNA as your second, um, I think it's a really, really easy choice, easy choice that here in Ontario, your second dose, if you received AstraZeneca as your first, should be Pfizer or Moderna. Um, there's just way too many risks with AstraZeneca um, as your second dose. And then also looking at the long run as well. Any like COVID-19 booster shots that we get are going to probably be mRNA boosters. And we know that mRNA boosters compound better when you've received another mRNA shot. So I would strongly, strongly recommend, um, based on the evidence, that those who received AstraZeneca as their first dose receive an mRNA as their second vaccine shot. And, and it sounds as if, I know in the hotspots, obviously, this is already beginning today, Toronto and, and Peel and places like that, but uh, right across the province, it looks like we're going to be accelerating that second shot uh, uh, process even more, I guess, for other areas, Hamilton and, and just the rest, the province for that matter as well. Uh, do we have, uh, to, uh, do the head count here for me, do we have enough vaccines to be able to do that in an expeditious manner? Yeah, I think that we do. The fact that we only... Um stated that seven areas were actually hot spots. I think we should be able to um, get enough vaccines out to those places. I know that like, June's a really good month for uh, vaccination um, numbers here in like, Canada, um, so it shouldn't be a really big issue. I guess my whole thing with the whole hot spot thing is that even in these hot spots, they're still keeping AstraZeneca at like, 12 weeks, and there's no evidence, no evidence that shows that you need to wait 12 weeks between AstraZeneca and an mRNA second shot. Zero evidence shows that. So I think that's a bit like concerning that even in the hot spots, we're still keeping 12 weeks for those who received AstraZeneca as their first shot. Where's the justification? I agree with you, by the way. I haven't seen any data on that either. And it brings back to the argument that, that we had way back when, when the vaccine started to get rolled out at the beginning of this year. Uh, when AstraZeneca passed the final trial and got uh, you know the thumbs up from Health Canada and from the FDA down in the States, uh, they said four weeks between doses. And, and it was the governments that said 12 weeks. And we assumed, although none of them would ever admit it, that it was simply because they didn't have the supply. <clears throat> they seem to now. As a matter of fact, the, the story I saw last week indicated that the United States, which I guess has tons of this stuff, hasn't even used it uh, because they don't need it. So, so they're, I, I'm assuming it's going to be part of the shipment to COVAX and to other parts of the world. But I can't understand why they're still insisting on 12 weeks for that second AstraZeneca shot. Yeah, so there was some data going back to February 2021 that showed if you wait 12 weeks, you do get a better response. And that was February. Um, we know a lot more about these kind of vaccines as we've rolled them out to people. Um, and a more recent preprint um, that I saw in the Lancet that was published at the end of May, I believe like on May 27th, so very, very new data, um, shows that um, like eight weeks is sufficient to get the antibody response from your first shot and then to have your second shot. So the evidence strongly supports eight weeks. And in fact, as far as I know, Ontario is the only province in the whole entire country that is sticking to 12 weeks. Alberta, Saskatchewan, Quebec, everywhere else, is only eight weeks between AstraZeneca doses. But I think my other worry is that, you know, the evidence shows that four weeks is fine if you had AstraZeneca as your first and you have an mRNA as your second shot. There's no reason that we're also going 12 weeks for that. We're extrapolating old AstraZeneca second dose information to a second dose Pfizer or Moderna. It makes absolutely no sense.
Well, it's causing a great deal of consternation. I mean, we've had a couple of people on the show already that have uh, complained to us about that, that very thing. Their first shot was AstraZeneca. They feel comfortable getting the second one, uh, but now they're wondering how, why they have to wait so long for it. And as we mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, uh, I, I think we're all kind of catching on to the fact that this seems to be a race against, uh, you know, what's going to happen with the, the Delta variant. You know, a, a lot more people are going to feel a lot more secure if they get that second shot because, as you've told us, uh, you know, even when you get the second shot, you still has to wait three or four weeks for it to have the full effect on your body, right? Right. And we were also talking, too, about the AstraZeneca study, which they're relying on for 12 weeks. That was back in February. We didn't have the Delta variant. The, the Delta variant wasn't looked at in that study that was published in February 2021. So I think, you know, that's something else which we need to look at as well, that it's much more highly transmissible, especially in the younger population. Which population received AstraZeneca first dose? The younger population. So I think we definitely need to look at that um, when we're looking at the late, late timeline between doses because the old evidence supports 12 weeks. The new evidence does not support 12 weeks between AstraZeneca doses. Another question that, that I get a lot, and hopefully you can shed some light on this too, Ryan, uh, how long is this vaccine going to last? I, I, you know, once we're injected, once we got our second shot and we're feeling much better about things, uh, most of the experts uh, that we've talked to, the, the disease specialists, have said, well, we're not sure. Uh, you may have to get a yearly booster. We're not exactly sure what's happening. Uh, now, when all of these things were okayed and got the thumbs up after all the rigorous testing that they all went through, uh, did they not get that far, just, just find out just how long it was going to last? Or was it that much of a rush to get these things to market because of what was going on at the time that maybe they just figure we'll figure that out later on? Or do they have a ballpark idea? Yeah, they should have a ballpark idea soon. I mean, with that being said, I mean, you know, some of these studies which came out, um, which approved the vaccines were in uh, December 2020. And in, you know, some situations, they really knew, they really waited um, no more than about 42 days after someone received their second dose. We don't have that long-term information yet. With that being said, I'm certain that in the next few months, um, you know, we're definitely going to see long-term information. We're going to see antibody counts in individuals who receive full vaccination in, let's say, January, February. I think that'll be very, 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 very interesting. But I think with that being said, we can still extrapolate about how, like, other vaccinations work. And with other vaccinations, um, you do need that, like, booster shot. And I think, you know, the other kind of added benefit to that booster shot is that it can be strain-based. So not only are you receiving a like, booster shot to like, boost your existing antibodies, but if we know that there's an epsilon strain, which is very, very dangerous, then we can also vaccinate against the epsilon strain and we can keep Ontario safe against that. And, and well, we know that already, as we mentioned, uh, you know, we I get an annual flu shot. I mean, because you don't know what strain I'm going to be dealing with or anybody's going to be dealing with. Uh, and to that point, uh, as they progress on this, and, you know, it's, it's comforting to know, by the way, that these companies are still continuing with their research uh, and wondering, you know, to make sure that the vaccine is going to be uh, as effective as possible against whatever variants come along. What about piggybacking? I, I had one doctor suggest the other day that perhaps uh, there may come a time, maybe even by next year, uh, where when I get my flu shot, I'll get a, a booster for the, the COVID shot at the same time. Is, is is that possible? Can you mix and match vaccines themselves? Yeah, I mean, you can certainly mix and match vaccines. I think, you know, what, one issue is, is if you look at when the start of flu season is um, versus when the start of like, COVID is, at least here in Ontario, we've always seen the uptick around the start of like August. Um, that's when we saw that, you know, start of that second wave um, and our numbers started to increase. So my only like, concern there would be the actual timing of it. I would say that probably with the COVID-19 booster in the future, once we get the, you know, the uh, like timing all kind of done, 
maybe we'll have like an early spring booster and then maybe it, it'll be like a late summer booster um, for every year to have the protection against COVID-19. So as I said, that's my only worry um, is the fact that flu season starts a little bit later. Um, you know, we seem to have no flu cases during the summer. In fact, you know, we really had no flu season at all here in Ontario um, this year. But even when we have flu season, it seems to start later on. So we just need to make sure that the vaccine coincides with when the COVID-19 will typically start. When we get to that point, and, and let's you know talk about the COVID booster shot, whether it's going to be annual, semi-annual, whatever the case might be, uh, is, is there going to be the same urgency to get it done ASAP, or can we be a little more relaxed in the rollout? Yeah, I think that's going to be very, very similar to the flu shot of old. I know that, um, you know, typically those people that didn't get the flu shot, they would usually get the flu shot if it was a very, very dominant strain. I know that around 2009 when H1N1 came out, um, there was a lot more flu vaccine uptake that year because of the H1N1. This would be the same thing with COVID as well. If we have like an epsilon strain, a gamma strain, whatever it is, that is very, very dominant in, um, you know, the Southern Hemisphere, South America, and, you know, we're seeing things kind of happen there, then we may see more uptake. So, so certainly I think it'll be strain based. The more transmissible, the more dominant a strain is, I think we'll, we'll see more uptake of those boosters if the booster covers that strain. So to that point, then, uh, we're not going to eradicate COVID. I mean, these things things are around. These coronaviruses are around. We know that. Uh, is it inevitable, then, that there is going to be another strain, not necessarily a fourth wave, but, I mean, another strain that could be uh, considered to be dangerous? Oh, for sure. In fact, right now, I know that the World Health Organization um, has basically used the first four letters of the Greek alphabet, uh, but I believe they've, they've assigned the next six to eight letters of the uh, the Greek alphabet to variants that they're watching so the you know first four official ones were the variants of the concern the ones that we know about um but they are you know as i said monitoring around six to eight like uh like other variants when more information comes in um then we'll know more about their like transmissibility which age groups they affect their effect on hospitalizations and most importantly if the vaccine works against those and i think that's a really big thing to point out is that as it stands right now there is no um, strain that is vaccine breakthrough. Um, that would be, you know, a situation which we, you know, certainly don't want and where you would have to have a booster. Um, but as it stands now, there's no strain that is uh, vaccine breakthrough. Always great to get you on the program and, and uh, shed some light on some of these things. I get a lot of questions on this every day, and every time we uh, have an opportunity to touch base with you, Ryan, it always, I think, assuages some of the uh, angst that a lot of us are feeling. Thanks for this. Uh, stay well, and we'll talk again soon. Sounds great. Take it easy. Take care. Ryan Imgren, of course, biostatistician who's got his finger on the pulse. He's a numbers guy. And uh, numbers tell the story, don't they? You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Our uh, MPPs are already back to work. Yeah, I know they, they actually rose for the summer about a week or so ago. But uh, news yesterday, of course, that we uh, talked about uh, that uh, suggests that the, the Premier is going to introduce legislation and invoke the notwithstanding clause uh, because the uh, election reform legislation that they had tried to ram through was judged to be unconstitutional. And uh, instead of uh, simply abiding by that court ruling, uh, they've decided to try to ram this thing through with that notwithstanding clause. A lot of people upset about that. Blake Lambert has the details. 
The proposed legislation would allow the governing progressive conservatives to restore changes to election finance law. MPPs will be recalled from their summer break to allow the bill to be introduced. The notwithstanding clause gives provincial legislatures or parliament the ability to override certain portions of the charter for a five-year term on Tuesday. Ontario Superior Court Justice Edward Morgan ruled that it was unnecessary to amend the Election Finances Act to extend the restricted pre-election spending period to 12 months. Blake Lambert, the Canadian Press, Toronto. Well, it's a majority government, so is there a sense of inevitability here? And is is it going to be over uh, if, in fact, the government goes through with this? I want to bring Richard Brennan into the conversation. Of course, former journalist uh, with the Toronto Star, covered Queen's Park and Parliament Hill for many years. Uh, do you ever do any of these all-night sessions, Badger? Oh, I can't count them. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, Bill, I'm no uh, constitutional expert, but I did cover the repatriation of the Constitution back in 1982. Mm-hmm. So I, I know a little bit about this. And just for background, so people understand what this is all about, Section 33 of the uh, Charter of Rights and Freedoms is colloquial known as, you know, as a nuclear option. Why did it get included in there? Maybe you could shed some light well, on it, that. it got included by the premiers thought that the Charter of Rights gave the courts too much power, and they wanted to have the ability to pull this lever in in the case of really important stuff that should apply only to the protection of the public, you know, good. And and this is you know and this is being you know not this is not my words. This is lots of constitutional experts' words. This is self-serving at best. Well, because, well sure it all. It's, it's, a, it's an end run around the process, isn't it? Well, what it does, this uh, Section 33 uh, is the, the notwithstanding clause. It empowers the Parliament and or legislatures to circumvent many of the Charter's most important guarantees, including the freedom of religion, freedom of expression, the right to equality, right to life, liberty, and the security of the person. And including that, you know, is your freedom of expression. And what the what the Superior Court said, you can't do what you're trying to do because you're limiting the, uh, a person or a group's rights to express themselves during a, a pre-election period. And and the government is saying, oh no, we've got to protect, uh, we've got to protect democracy, and we have to stop these third-party groups you know, um, working families or and others from spending money to advertise and point out the, you know, the uh, problems with the existing government, wherever that might be. And they're saying, we have to stop. This is just, you know, this is, uh, this is what's happening in the United States, a pack, if you will, and uh, this should not happen here and that. But what people probably don't know is that it was completely okay for the Conservative Party to to have what was called Ontario Proud in the 2018 election. Yeah. Uh, and it, Ontario Proud was funded by developers, and they spent hundreds of thousands of dollars attacking the Premier, uh, then Kathleen Wynne's Liberal Party. And they were crazy. they were well organized. I mean, they had a Facebook oh, page. They they, oh. they bought airtime on on radio and television right across the province. I mean, these Absolutely, guys they had their act together. That was okay then, Bill. That was okay then because you know it it helped the conservatives. But now that they 
they see that the working families is probably gearing up again to have run ads against their government. And given the fact that they've handled or mishandled the, uh, you know, the pandemic and other things as well, there's, there's a lot of ammunition there, whether you agree with it or not. And they don't want, they desperately don't want the working families to spend millions of dollars attacking the government in this, in this, uh, before this next election. And here's the problem I've got with it, and I'm not necessarily, as we've talked about on the show before, I'm not espousing the, you know, what working families do or any of these other groups, these third-party groups that do, but uh, whether you like their message or not, uh, they, they should have a right to be involved in the democratic process. I mean, that's what this is all about. You know, if a group, whether it's teachers, whether it's working families, whether it's any other group that, that wants to get together and raise money for a cause like this, they have a right to express their opinion. If they don't like what the government's doing, just like a number of groups did, you just talk about you know the the one that was going after Kathleen Wynne. Well, they I think they were all going after Kathleen Wynne in the last election, but that's that's all part of the process, and it's up to we the voters to decide whether or not you the, the message resonates with you or not. But basically, what they're doing here, they're not shutting them down. I get that, but they're basically limiting exactly when they can do this. Oh, uh, so yeah, when they can do and how much they can spend. So effectively neutering. Yeah. So, so as the election heads around the, you know, the, 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 the final turn and they're heading into the, you know, the last part of the race here, basically they're shutting them out. You've got to remember, this isn't the first time that the premier has threatened to use this nuclear option, the notwithstanding yep. clause. He threatened to do it when, when he was trying to pare down the numbers of the, on the city council in Toronto. Yep. And, in the, in the, and he didn't do it. And but this time it looks pretty clear to me that they're going to do it. And he said he'll use as many times as he wants to. And you know, for the average observer, it looks like bullying to me because he's saying whatever I disagree with, whatever the courts rule, and I disagree with that, I'll use this to get my way. And again, that's just not that's not me saying it. That's many constitutional experts, including. Bill Davis is one of the signatories to the this you know, the Charter of Freedom. Yep. He has come out and said this is not what this was meant for. And it's not only people have to understand that it's not just uh, you know the working families or or Ontario Proud. It could be it could be a environmental group that's <clears throat> opposed. To a particular government policy, and they well, will not be able to allow to do advertise and, and and point out the you know the problems with whatever what the government is proposing. Let me let me just speculate for a second here because you've hit on a, I think a very important point here. Uh, there's going to be an election a, a year from now, the first week of June next year, or sooner. But I mean, it has to be probably by the first week of June of next year. So as they head into the campaign, let's assume we go to next June, and let's look at the record as you and I have talked about uh, for the last 12 months here of the Ford government's handling of the pandemic. I, I can speculate at this stage right now that a number of, of of medical groups, medical experts, maybe maybe even some of the people that sit on the science panel may have something to say about the way the government handled the pandemic. And they want to be vocal about it. Hey, we don't trust these guys. They didn't follow our advice. That. You've got teachers who are going to be upset about this, about the way they handle the school closures and a number of other things within there. You've got that element. Uh, you've got people who have families in, in long-term care facilities uh, that are very upset about what happened in there. And that's just that's three right off the top of my head. We haven't even gotten into working families or anybody else. Oh, no, now, exactly. now, and, and basically what this this 
this whole bill is, is planned to do here is to shut out these contrary voices. We don't want the criticism. We see where we are in the polls right now. We don't want anybody piling on. Uh, and and that, that's basically what they're doing. And I don't care if it's Doug Ford or Kathleen Wynne or anybody else. This is not what this is that, that, that clause was intended to do. It's an abuse of it and just to try to ram through legislation. But it's not just the legislation they're ramming through. It's legislation that's basically going to tilt the playing field in the favor of the governing party. Bill, you and I agree that this is, uh, got, n has nothing to do with political parties. It wouldn't, it wouldn't matter who was in power. This has to be pointed out. This is not what this was meant for. It's abuse of power, and it's as clear as simple as that. And also, Bill, there's a, uh, it's a two-pronged approach with this. It's also to change the channel. They want it. They they want to take the focus off, off the pandemic. You know, things are getting better. You know, people are getting their second shots, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And they want to. They want to say, well, forget all about that. Let's talk about you know some. You know, we're, I'm, we're here to protect people from the likes of the working families and, and and all that and those big bad unions. I mean, I can tell you, you're going to hear that time and time again. They, we're protecting the public from the big bad unions, the the uh, you know the, some of the rich people who got money to throw around, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You're going to hear it time and again that that's what that's what they're doing and that's what their focus is, and and so it, it takes attention away from their record on the pandemic. By the way, there's another part to this. I mean, bills are always multifaceted. We understand that. Uh, but another part of this bill also increases the amount of money that individuals can contribute to political parties uh, over and above what happened over the last election, too, uh, which, by the way, uh, is, is a, a plus for the, the wealthier people that want to get involved in the political process. So I guess what the government's telling us here, if you got a lot of money, we want your money and we want your voice. Uh, but if you're not, if you're one of the people who thinks they're getting a raw deal from this government, be quiet. We don't want this at all. And, and by the way, those those large donors tend to favor the conservative parties. Uh, I, I know that you know the liberals will get some of that money too. They usually do, but not as much. And and look at ha what happened after this government got elected in the last election. All of a sudden, some of those people that made those large contributions, including Ontario Proud members, I'm sure, uh, started talking about incursions into the green belt. They started talking about throwing out the energy program. And look at look at the mess that caused. So you tell me who's influenced the government. Well, don't forget the 413. Yeah. No, it, well, you got to remember, in the last government, Kathleen Wynne's government, agreed that corporations and unions should not be able to make, contribute, you know, individuals could, but not corporations and, and, and unions to elections. And, and that's, and I think that's what a lot of, provinces have looked at and some have adopted but the, the, that was immediately swept aside when when ford came to power because like you say you know it's corporations and big businesses they usually give money to the conservatives and now they're increasing what they even got before so i mean the hypocrisy here is just stunning but they're the government of the day, and, uh, you know, they control the spin. But by the way, it wasn't lost on me, and I'm sure on you, so you've been following these so many years. Uh, this particular 
try, you know, move to try to do what they're doing here with the notwithstanding clause. Uh, and a couple of other things that have happened here. It's uh, pretty obvious that the, uh, the, uh, the election team is running the, the show at Queen's Park right now. I know that the, the Premier has had advisors uh, through the first three years of his uh, his government, uh, but we've heard, uh, and I think you've mentioned this, uh, and your uh, your colleague, of course, Rob Benzi of the Star, I think, reported on this the other day. Uh, the uh, the Dream Team that got him elected last time are back in there. Now they're the ones that are doing consulting. And have you already noticed the difference? Uh, we're seeing less of the Premier now. He's not making as many public statements as he used to. Uh, you're seeing some of these things here, these change-the-channel moves by the government. Uh, which is the strategy that that was you know expected in a situation like this? Uh, you know, the less we see of Ford, the better his popularity numbers seem to be. You know, the, the more he talks, the more trouble he seems to get himself into. So this is this is all part of a grander scheme, I think, that's going on here. Uh, and uh, I would expect with the election coming up on a year from now, we can expect more of the same. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this 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 notwithstanding clause is paving the way to the government bulldozing their way to the next election. That's all there is to it. And they're going to do it in various forms. You know, like you said, they're going to increase, you know, the amount that you know, people can give to and corporations, et cetera, can give to uh, uh, politicians. No, it's <clears throat> the ordinary guy, I'll tell you, a man and woman is losing their voice because government, a big business is having a huge impact on this government. I mean, I, I don't, and that's just not me saying that. That's, you know, that's proven in, in, in a series of stories that was done by the Toronto Star and the Hamilton Spectre that, that pointed out an example of the 413, the pressure that was on the government to build 413 so they could build homes along that route. Mm-hmm. It was proven. And there's just going to be more of that. And, and I'm not saying people should vote this government out. You know, they, that's up to them. But the point is that the voice, the voice of the average person is uh, tending to be lost in this whole process. And, and that's not good. Well, it's not only de- tending to be lost, it's not being heard. I mean, with, sex, with this section being uh, applied, your rights for freedom of expression are gone. In terms of advertising, not completely gone, but they're certainly uh, they're certainly suspended in part. So that's what people have to look forward to, because it's it's going to be all about who has the money and how it's going to be applied. That's what this election is going to be all about. And we also need to remind ourselves, by the way, even if, and I agree with you, I, I'm not going to predict who's going to win the next election. I, I still think, you know, we were talking uh, yesterday in the program about there seems to be a bit of a bump in Ford's numbers over the last uh, week or 10 days or so. And that's, I know they're still upset with him, but I think they're looking at the other options and figuring, well, you know, he's the devil we know. So, and a year is a long time in this. So we don't know how that election is going to turn out. But at some point down the road, what if there is another government? What if the people that are supporting Doug Ford and the Conservatives right now are on the other side and they're in the opposition and they want to win that election and get power back? They're going to be stuck with the same rule because if this goes through and you know because they have a majority government, it probably is going to go through. This is for five years. Well, it can be it can be reversed though. Yeah, it can you know it can be withdrawn. I mean, it's for five years, and it can be. And by the way, it can be extended after that five years. Oh yeah. Depends on who's uh, sitting in the corner yeah, office. And you know what? I've seen governments, you know, one opposition parties cry about the abuse of power of such and such, uh, you know, the government in power. 
And when they get in, they don't change things. You know, they keep all the heavy-handed measures that were brought in by the previous government. So, I mean, this is, this is our... It's just something that people should turn their mind to. And I know people are, you know, they're, they're want this, you know, the pandemic behind them. They want to get their... They want to get their second shot, and they want things to get back to normal. And and this sounds like a you know a you know a, a constitutional uh, highbrow kind of conversation. It really isn't. It's about rights, and it's about whether they want the government had to have the ability and you know, to take away whatever rights they want whenever they want it. Well, we'll be following the discussion and the debate, I guess, through the course of the evening. You don't need your sleeping bag this time. You can just uh, sit at home and, and, and tweet about it, I suppose. It's a lot easier for uh, for all of us, I guess. Uh, Badger, have a great weekend. Uh, thanks so much for this, and uh, we'll talk again next week for okay, sure. Bill. See you later. Take care. Richard Bye. Brennan, of course, who covered a lot of these online sessions at Queen's Park for many, many years. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to shine the light on something that uh, we, because of all the other things happening, may be overlooking it. It's such a very, very important issue. Uh, since the, uh, the discovery, of course, of the mass graves in Kamloops and uh, the focus uh, about residential schools and the impact that they had on generations and den- generations of Indigenous people, we're talking about the government's role in this. Well, well, this is going on. And while they're saying all the right things about this, uh, about you know treatment of Aboriginals and there has to be some justice and there has to be reconciliation, uh, they are continuing a court battle right now uh, to fight uh, a compensation package that uh, Human Rights Tribunal had already awarded. Uh, and this is ongoing, notwithstanding what happened in Kamloops and what happened in other residential schools. It's uh, a, some, just makes you scratch your head that they seem to be working at dual purposes here. I want to bring Cindy Blackstock into the conversation. Cindy is the Executive Director of First Nations Child and Family Caring Society of Canada. Cindy, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Thanks for having me, Bill. Uh, I, I don't know uh, the, the, the ministers in charge here. I, I mean, I, I see uh, Aboriginal Services Minister Mark Miller on TV just about every day. Uh, uh, Carolyn Bennett, of course, who is the, the Minister for Crown Indigenous Relations. Uh, I've met her on a few occasions. Seems like a very nice lady. They seem very passionate. Uh, but with, how can they say one thing and do another like this? And it's not their call. This is the government itself and the Prime Minister and, and the entire cabinet. But why are they carrying on this battle? Oh, my gosh, that's a million-dollar question. Well, just to give your listeners some background, the federal government funds public services on reserve and has done so at far lesser levels since Confederation. And all of that piles up on families, meaning that their kids are more likely to end up in foster care. In fact, their rates in foster care today are higher than they were in residential schools in terms of removals from families. So the tribunal said all of this was discriminatory back in 2016 and ordered Canada to stop. It didn't stop, though. We were at 19 non-compliance orders. And one of those orders uh, that the tribunal said was for that, that these children who were wrongfully removed from their families, who were harmed and sadly some died, are entitled to $40,000 in compensation. The federal government doesn't want to pay any of that. Uh, their application uh, that they're going to hear next week is to quash the order entirely. And keep in mind, these are children. And my question to the prime minister is, if he doesn't think $40,000 is uh, if he thinks that's too much for a lost childhood or a lost child's life, then what does he think these kids are worth? And what's the message he's sending? 
And then on top of that, they're fighting again. So they have two judicial reviews next week. The second one is to deny First Nations kids off-reserve help under something called Jordan's Principle, which is to make sure kids get access to public services free of discrimination. So they're fighting that too. These have already been adjudicated, though. I mean, the tribunal's already yeah. spoken on this. This is not as if, okay, we want to argue in front of this. You argued. They cited on the other side. I mean, it's it's time to just let this go and pay up. But this, You know, when I saw this story, Cindy, it reminded me of, a, I thought, a, a equally outrageous thing that they did a few years ago when they first got elected. Uh, while they were in opposition, they chided the Harper government for the mistreatment of, of veterans and the fact that you had, you know, the, the compensation packages, and they actually took those veterans to court uh, just yeah. so that they wouldn't have to pay them. And then they won the subsequent election. And what did they do? They continued the court action. You know, it, it, it was wrong when the Harper government did it, but it was okay when they did it. Well, this, this is the same mindset that's going on here. Yeah, it's really egregious. And in ministries, we're talking about little kids who are still children. This is a small bit of justice they could get. And it just doesn't, it's also important to know that equity and child welfare and Jordan's principle are two of the top three calls to action from the TRC. And Canada has them right in their sights and is actively fighting against them. So just like in that veterans case, they really are, in my view, though, Bill, out of step with the will of Canadians. Like Canadians are shaking their heads at this one. And so that's a great uh, beacon of hope because we can rely on Canadians to say, hey, you're not litigating this in my name. And next time you come around for my vote, I'm going to remember this. And that's what we need to do when we see them doing these things to veterans, to seniors, to children and others. Look, we are rightly, I think, focused on, on what happened in residential schools, and it's about time we started to pay attention to that yeah. that ugly chapter in our history. And that's that's good that that conversation is ongoing. But I think we've taken our eye off the ball, Cindy. To your point, about what's what's going on now. Yeah. Uh, you know, I made I made the point on the program the other day. It's it's like you know, when Gord Downey, God rest his soul, was was still alive and they were doing the final tour. He made it his life's work uh, yeah. to talk about the the plight of Aboriginal and Indigenous people in this country, and you know the the the, the water advisory, boiled water advisories, and everything. And and it was and it was front and center because you know we we were listening to what he had to say. And sadly, he passed away, and we've forgotten about it. Those things still exist. On, on those on those in, indigenous lands up north, there's still places where you can't drink the water. There's still places where they're living in clapboard huts, you know, and it's minus twenty outside. Uh, out of sight, out of mind. That seems to be the the, the, the mindset here, and I, I can't understand that. Why can't we marry these two ideas and simply say, you know what, we have not done our job here? Yeah, and like I mean, we they always put out these excuses. For example, they'll they'll say, well, they're too remote or it's complex. Well, we got. We have clean water and high-speed internet in the space station, population six. So why can't they get it an hour and a half outside of Toronto? Like, this is, it is that lack of political will. They think they can get away with this using really um, racial discrimination as fiscal policy, and they will continue to get away with it until we as members of the public say we've had enough, over, done. So what can we do? Well, we can get a hold of our member of parliament, uh, tell them to stop litigating against residential school survivors and First Nations kids and implement the TRC's calls to action. And when they come knocking uh, for your vote, tell them that, you know, you want these inequalities, everything from water on out to be dealt with. And uh, no more excuses. You'll be watching what they do, not what they say.
And ask, by, by the way, how they voted, because as, as you know, but I'll just remind our listeners, uh, Parliament did pass, it's a non-binding motion the, from yeah. the NDP, uh, basically saying, do this, drop the, the litigation, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and uh, some Liberals voted for it. I mean, uh, yeah. sadly, though, the Prime Minister and, and the Cabinet uh, abstained. Uh, they did not vote uh, in favor of this, uh, but some MPs did. So, I mean, you know, I don't want to throw everybody into the same uh, yeah. pot here. There, there may be a few that, that are on the right side on this, but yeah. our voices have to be heard here. That's the takeaway here, isn't it? That is the absolute takeaway. And the Prime Minister in the House of Commons uh, just a couple of days ago in question period actually said something very puzzling to me. He said, we're not litigating against Indigenous kids. And I think, well, uh, you served me with notice to show up to, to because you want to overturn these orders, which put First Nations kids right in your sight. So, yes, there are some Liberals who are supporting the implementation of the TRC call to action, and that's awesome. But the government decision-making machine is still fighting against these kids. Well, uh, the eyes of the nation are on this right now. I know that uh, there are a number of allies and folks that are in the corner right now, including yourself and, and Perry Belgrade and so many others. Uh, hopefully these guys are going to see the light. Cindy, let's stay in touch as uh, this evolves over the next little while. Thanks for spending a little bit of time with us today. Hey, thank you, Bill. And everyone can watch this hearing on the federal court website. Just click on the link and you'll be able to tune in. There you go. Excellent stuff. Thanks again, Cindy. Take care. Cindy Blackstock, Executive Director of First Nations uh, Child and Family Caring Society of Canada, with an incongruity that needs to be fixed. That's all there is to it. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.